is a, a renovation of the heart and a renovation of, of us collectively, of the house. Jesus is the framer and the reframer of our lives. Grace is, is costly. By this, people will know that you're mine. Good morning, people. Glad you're here on this day before the last week of the semester. Crazy. Wanted to give you a bit of a preview of what to expect next semester as you go into this break. Uh, spring break is one of our highlights of our year. Each year we take 70, 80 students to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And so we wanted to invite you to come along and um, spend some time in the mountains, time with the community, God's people. Also, we have a women's retreat. That is in February, and that same weekend, we want to take a bunch of guys to Pittsburgh to the Jubilee Conference. And so those are ways to grow in your faith and ways to spend some really awesome time with God and with uh, the church. Also, just our normal weekly gatherings next semester. Um, there's a whole list of them there. On Sundays, we'll be moving through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And then in community groups, we'll be talking through Ecclesiastes. And so if you have put off being in a community group or if you kind of started in one and life got busy, this is a way to reconnect with those groups. And again, it's an incredible way to, to grow in your faith with some other people. We have some vision trips. Ken mentioned the one to Indianapolis that revolves around uh, an awareness of modern-day slavery and sex trafficking, but we also have a group going to Ecuador uh, just in a couple of weeks, so be praying for them because they'll be, the first week in January, they'll be in Ecuador working. And we have a vision trip to Northern Ireland, which will be really focused on prayer and evangelism, so a couple of those opportunities. We uh, I included our moving day in the list of missions and service. Um, wanted to, you to be aware that next slide, these are some moving dates. Uh, April 3rd and 4th, we will be packing up and moving out, so we're going to need a ton of help to get everything out of this building. And then April 5th will be our last worship service here. And then Easter service is the next week, and that'll be in Fowler Hall. So it's, it just got really real. You know, that this is all happening. And speaking of that, I wanted to show you just a bit of what this new building is going to be like and really ask you to, to pray as we uh, continue to uh, raise funds for the new building and continue to uh, sort through all of the details and all the moving parts of a year in transition. And there's just a lot to do. And so be praying for that. If you could share what's going on with our community, with your families, and, and really ask them to be praying, and, and if they are willing to, to support this good work, that's awesome. Um, also, just prayers of gratitude. 
God has been faithful every stage of this. And his timing is perfect, and his provision is just mind-blowing. And so we're just, we're moving as a community into this next season from a place of just gratitude and and thanksgiving and excitement about what God has done and what he will continue to do. We'll be putting together some different teams for next semester as well. And so if you are not presently on one of our leadership teams, there will be some chances to do that. We'll have a a mobile team. We'll be kind of a mobile church for about a year, 16 months. Um, We'll have a communications team. We'll have uh, a food team with all of our events that have food, and we'll have, uh, we want to put together a starry night team uh, as we start to plan for next September, okay? So you'll be hearing about all of that coming up when you get back from break. I want to come back to our theme, overall theme, which is the same as our capital campaign theme, which is reframing the house. We've been talking about that it has two parts to it. There's a, a renovation of the heart and a renovation of of us collectively, of the house. And the renovation of the heart is really this process of not just learning new stuff, but it is deconstructing and reconstructing. It is, it's unlearning some patterns and some addictions and some behaviors, and, but also some nuances of, of theology and just attitude and how we see God in order to realign and reorient with what is true about Jesus in the midst of Scripture. It is a process of sanctification. It is Jesus filling more and more of our periphery. And so we see everything is about his glory. We started the service with those questions. It's like, how has God been moving and reframing each of our lives in this semester? What's he been constructing and deconstructing and reconstructing? This is for us as individuals, but also for us as a church. The renovation of the house is this ongoing reframing of what it means to to be the people of God, to be uh, embodying and demonstrating the kingdom of Jesus to be unified together in the midst of diversity, to be on mission for his glory. There's been a lot of talk the last few weeks about um, our constitution in our country and a lot of talk about the framers of the constitution and what they meant or didn't mean uh, by when, when they originally wrote the constitution. I was thinking about the word framer in light of our theme and and reframing the house. And to frame something means, in construction terms, it means to to build walls, right? To to build a border, some sort of of boundary or structure that gives shape and strength. So the workers come in after the foundation's laid and they put up walls and they put up a roof and the house starts to take shape. And in a constitution or... A handbook, a frame is a set of ideas or conditions or assumptions that determine how something will be approached or perceived or understood. So there has been a lot of debate 
the last few weeks about what did the original framers mean when it came to our Constitution? How, if they were here, how would they interpret or reinterpret the Constitution in light of our context, in light of our 200 years later, our setting? You know, what would Franklin and Adams and Jefferson have to say? Well, they're dead, so we don't know, you know? But as we think about reframing our lives and reframing the church around the glory of Jesus, it's a different scenario. First of all, Scripture is not a constitution. It's not a handbook. It is the Word of God And even though it has an original context, an original meaning for the original readers, it also is relevant in every time and in every culture. It is alive. It is active. It is moving. And even beyond that, the framer of not just Scripture, but the framer of everything, of all of existence, of all of reality, he's eternal. He's not dead. Hebrews says, Jesus is the author and the perfecter. He is the founder and the finisher. Jesus is the framer and the reframer of our lives and of his church and of heaven and earth and everything. So this process of sanctification that you and I are on, this renovation ongoing of our heart, of our minds to to conform to Jesus, That is in tandem with this renovation project that that Jesus is doing in us all together. How he makes the church holy. This tracking? Does this make sense? Here's another way of saying it. You've heard of the Reformation, right? Just celebrated 500th anniversary of the Reformation. 16th century. The Reformation originally was not intended to be the reformation, but rather the reforming. It wasn't to be a one and done, check it off the list, okay, now we're, we're done with that. Karl Barth and others put this Latin phrase on it, ecclesia semper reformanda est. It means the church must always be reformed. You know Why? Because we're messy and we're broken and we're stupid and we need Jesus. It's the reforming, it's ongoing renovation. And Jesus is doing that in the large church, the universal church, church all over the world. But he's also doing it in the local church, in the greater Lafayette Community Church, but also in Campus House. And we are at an unprecedented time in our history. In 54, 55 years of our existence, this is a unique time. In April, this building will be deconstructed. And as the architects and the builders put together a new physical building, Jesus has and is and will continue to reframe us as a church. The call on us is to keep in step with the Spirit, 
It's to listen and be obedient to the word. The call is to walk in faith. The call is to walk in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Our case study for this renovation project has been the book of Acts. And anytime you approach any scripture, you want to look at three things. What does this scripture say about God? What does this scripture say about our context individually and together? And then what is the call of the scripture for our lives? What is it telling us to do? Where is it telling us to go? And today, I want to look at just a couple short passages in Acts 11 and 13. And this is, we're wrapping up our series because we're going to do Sermon on the Mount next semester, which is going to be awesome and mind-blowing. But as we wrap this up, we're not done with Acts. We're only like not even halfway through. But there are a couple of portraits of the life of the Jesus follower and the life of the church together that I want us to look at as we look at this passage in Acts 11. Okay? Can I pray? Okay. God, thank you for your grace today. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for your spirit who uh, connects the dots for us. Would you give us an attentiveness and uh, an expectation as we come to your word? God, just would you, um, our minds are spinning with a ton of things, and most of us haven't slept very much, and uh, there's just, our, our lives are full, and our calendars are full, and this is a big week coming up. So would you just help us to breathe in and to breathe out with an awareness of your presence with us. These, just these next few minutes, Lord, would you uh, use my words, would you just bypass me altogether and just speak directly to each of us today. We'll give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 11. If you have a Bible, you want to turn there? Or if you want to look at the screen, it's totally up to you. Verse 19 is where we're going to start. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Persecution broke out in Acts chapter 8 when Stephen was put to death. And the church was scattered and they went all over the place. And what Satan had thought would kill the church actually grew it. Because everywhere people went, they talked about Jesus. And so the, the church is growing, but up to this point, it's only among Jewish people. With the exception of Peter and Cornelius. The gospel is spreading. Here's the map. It says, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is that little island out there in the Mediterranean Sea. Cyrene is clear down here on the northern tip of Africa. So men from both of those places went to Antioch. And they preached the good news of Jesus, not to Jews, but 
to Gentiles. So news of this, verse 22, reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This is, this is awesome, right? Gospels preached. Tons of people coming to Jesus. The church in Jerusalem found out about it. Jerusalem is like still the, the mothership. It's where the church started. That's where the apostles are. And so they sent Barnabas to check out to see if this was legit. As the church is expanding, you have the possibility of things like people falling through the cracks. And we saw that earlier with the widows in Jerusalem. But you also have the possibility of of little things and big things that would tend to destroy what God is doing. You can't destroy it, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> things like uh, wonky theology, things like uh, tribalism or disunity and divisions, or going after numbers but neglecting discipleship, or overlooking sin in neglecting truth or neglecting grace because there's such an emphasis on rule keeping. I just described a bulk of the rest of the New Testament. So Jerusalem, the shepherds, the leaders in Jerusalem send Barnabas to make sure that this Gentile conversion is legit. Jerusalem all the way down the bottom, all the way up to Syrian Antioch. And then Barnabas, we met him in chapter 4. His real name was Joseph. He was uh, from the tribe of Levi, which they were all about ministry. He was from Cyprus, that same island. And he had sold some land, uh, we found out in the first part of Acts. He sold some land in order to give the money to the poor. He was known for his generosity. And he got a nickname, a really cool nickname. The apostles called him son of encouragement. He was a good man, Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And it makes sense that there was a congruency of mission and practice. As we look at this portrait of a Jesus follower, that's so important. There is a congruency of the inside and the outside. See, Barnabas wasn't just a gifted guy. He had character. He had integrity. It wasn't just about ability. It was about being spirit-filled. It wasn't just about encouragement, but actually exhortation, in that he was passionately spurring them on to stay true to Jesus. There's nothing fluffy about this guy. Antioch. Barnabas shows up and he saw the grace of what God has done. He was glad and he encouraged them to keep going. And then, verse 25, and then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. 
And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, and they taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. If you remember uh, when Saul first became a Christian, people were really apprehensive about whether it was legit. I mean, this is the guy that was coming after them to persecute them and to put them into prison. And now all of a sudden he's a Christian? Mm, seems convenient. So Barnabas is the one that goes to the church and says, no, it's real. It's real. He is actually a Jesus follower. Barnabas is an advocate. Barnabas is an encourager. He was also an includer. He was also a teacher. He was also a pastor. Show that map again, if you would. Barnabas goes to Tarsus, which is up in modern-day Turkey, to look for Saul in order to bring, them ba- bring him back to Antioch in Syria so that together they could teach the new Christians. Barnabas is being led by the Spirit, but he's also being really rational. Saul makes sense. So Antioch is this cultural milieu. You've got all these different, different languages, different, it's a trade route, right? So you had Jewish people in Antioch, you had Greek-speaking citizens, and you had Roman citizens all in Antioch. Saul, which would become Paul, was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was rabbinically trained. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. He was a Jew. It's also Greek-speaking. He knew the Greek culture. He was also a Roman citizen. So it made sense for Saul to come alongside Barnabas and to teach for a full year to equip the people together. This is a portrait of a Jesus follower. First Peter talks about grace in its various forms. And we see that right here. It's like you represent Grace in its various forms. Each of you could stand up here with a microphone and share what God has done or now is doing, even by being in this room. You could share your story, and every story would sound different. Grace isn't this one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter thing. In Barnabas, you see grace in its various forms in one person. And as we, we look at this portrait, what does it mean for you and me to, to follow Jesus? Grace shows up in different ways. He extends grace through generosity, but also through advocacy. He extends grace through encouragement and humility in contentment, and tenacity. Grace is diverse. Grace is, is costly. It cost him material possessions when he sold his land in order to feed the poor. It cost him a possible reputation when he advocated for a church killer named Saul. It cost him safety and security when he embarked on a missionary journey 
It cost him a strained friendship. Later in Acts, you read about on the missionary journeys, they had this guy named John Mark. And John Mark, halfway through the journey, one of these missionary trips, he went home. He was homesick. So when the next one came around, Paul was like, eh, not going to take John Mark. And Barnabas said, I think we should. It put some strain on their friendship because he was advocating for John Mark. Grace is costly, and grace is sufficient. Barnabas had this open-handedness to life. He had this open-handedness with his possessions, with his reputation. He had this open-handedness with his uh, future, with his safety and security, with his job description. His life was centered on Jesus. And grace is humble. At this point, it is Barnabas and Saul, but Saul is soon going to be called Paul. And at that point on in the book of Acts, Luke says it was Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas takes a back seat to Paul. Second fiddle, second chair. But he was totally good with that. You know why? Because he was all about Jesus, who Philippians says did not consider his equality with God something to hang on to. It wasn't about his reputation. It wasn't about his status. But he emptied himself to the point of servanthood and in death on a cross. Barnabas was mimicking Jesus. This is an awesome portrait of a Jesus follower for us. The last thing I want to do is, is to look at this portrait of church as well, okay? Are you with me? Okay, I know you're tired. Got lots spinning. I'll make this quick. We've been talking about church as a, like a three-legged stool to try to describe what church looks like. Can you put that up there? Um, go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. There. Uh, people of the word and people of action and people of the spirit. We want to be people of the word, and we want to be people of action, and we want to be people of the spirit. And we see all of that in the early church in the book of Acts. They were people of the word. They proclaimed the word. They preached the word. But they also discipled and nurtured and equipped. That's what we're doing. They were people of action. That's uh, social justice and generosity. But it's also conflict resolution and ethnic reconciliation. And they were people of the spirit. Spiritual gifts, they were people of prayer, they were people of, who were in step with the Spirit. And we see all of that in this passage. People of the Word. In Acts 2, Luke says that the Word of God was proclaimed, but also that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to discipleship. And in Antioch, these followers became these people became followers of Jesus, but Barnabas and Saul took a full year to equip them, to disciple them, to nurture them, to be in the word, to 
because they needed to grow. They needed the word to take root. Otherwise, it would shrivel and die, and it would be, well, yeah, I got baptized. But that was a long time ago. What's it mean to have a vibrant and growing faith in Jesus? It takes nurturing, cultivating, and that's what they did. That's why Barnabas goes to Tarsus and says, Saul, I need your help. They spent a whole year with them. They taught them. They prayed with them. They worshiped with them. They were people of the word. They were also people of action. If you read on, verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to to Antioch. Geographically, Jerusalem was below Antioch, but Jerusalem, it's all about going up to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? It's on a mountain. So that's why, if, if you're geography, you know, it's like, oh, Luke's a little off in his geography. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. This is actually, actually historically happened. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to prove, provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And this they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Not only was the word proclaimed, but they were embodying and demonstrating what it meant to be one in heart and mind. That was the picture in the Jerusalem church, that there was no needy person among them. And now that is the reality in the church in Antioch. That's the DNA of the body of Christ, to have this radical generosity and to have this mutuality and this oneness, to not be independent in our, and autonomous in our church, but to see us as part of the larger body of Christ so that when there is a need, we meet that need. John 13, Jesus says, By this people will know that you're my disciples, not by what you're for or against, but by your love. By this People will know that you're mine by the way that you love one another. That's that's the mark of the Christian. People of, of action shows up in generosity and justice, but also in missions and evangelism because it's led by the Spirit, and that's the third part of the stool. People of the Spirit, Acts 13, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while, listen, while they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. They sent them off. They were in step with the Holy Spirit. What's it mean to keep in step with the Holy Spirit? We say that every week. What's it actually mean? Well, two things. Probably like 47 things. 
but we need to go study for finals. So two things. One is wait. To wait. Which is hard. Jesus said, right before he ascended back to the Father, he said, I want you to go to Jerusalem. He talked, talking to his disciples. I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And they didn't know if that was going to be two days or two years. So they went and they gathered and they prayed and they waited. And then the Holy Spirit came with power and everything. Well, you know the story. They waited. Saul became a Christian because Jesus appeared to him when he was on his way to throw Christians in prison. And Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, why, who are you? And he said, Jesus. And he goes, oh. And Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be my voice. You're going to be my emissary. You're going to be my man to the Gentiles. You will suffer a lot because of my name. That was the calling on Saul slash Paul's life. You know how long it was until Barnabas came and got him in Tarsus? Ten years. Ten years. Why am I saying this? Because some of us are sitting here saying, I want to do big things for God. I, I'm, I'm in, man. I, I don't want to mess around. I want to, I want to see my engineering degree as a way to bring glory to Jesus. I, I want to set the world on fire. I, I, want, to, I, want, to go, I want to go. I want to go start something. I, I want to be all about Jesus and his kingdom. And for some of you, it's like Jesus was saying, hmm, wait. wait. Keep in step with the Spirit. Some of us, I think, just get ahead of the Spirit. We're so zealous, we're so ready that we just go. And that usually ends in some chaos. Some of us are lagging behind the Spirit. It's like we're, we're passive and we're just like, I don't even know if I'm into this. And I, I don't know if it's worth the cost. And the Spirit says, come on. The Spirit says, come on. Waiting to be in step with the Spirit is part of being the people of the Spirit. The other part is being people of the Spirit together. You see that all through Acts. He's like Peter and John are making their way through Samaria. Peter and the brothers from Jerusalem are walking up the coast towards Caesarea. Pete, Philip, no. Who am I talking about? Barnabas. He, he goes and grabs Saul. Like, there's a, there's a togetherness. Some of us are really zealous. It's like, I'm going to go full tilt. And I don't care if anybody goes with me. It's like, what we see in Acts is that there was always togetherness. Here's the last thing. There was this 
empowering of the spirit and proclaiming the news and discipleship and sharing possessions. There was, there was outreach and nurture and mission. Or in, in our vernacular here at Campus House, they, they reached and they equipped and they mobilized. They were people of the word and people of the spirit and people of action. Here's the last thing about this church. It was an outpost of the kingdom. It was an outpost of the kingdom. Now, that, that word, that imagery has some possible negativity attached to it. I'm not talking about like a military outpost, but I am talking about like an expansion and a movement of people. Uh, in, in our country, you had these outposts where um, there was a, a chance for people to pioneers in their covered wagons to get refreshed and renewed and to learn about the terrain and to learn about the geography of where they're going and and then to be sent out, right? So I don't want to get too far in the weeds with that analogy because there's all sorts of messed up stuff too with our pioneers. But that idea of outpost, Antioch was an outpost. It was a sending base for the church. And it made sense because, like I said, it was this intersection of cultural ideas and, and languages and philosophies and religions and, and just all kinds of people were coming to Antioch. It was a trade route. It's a marketplace. And as the church grew up, they sent out people on mission. I really feel like God is calling us as this house to be an outpost of the kingdom. You come in these doors, you're coming from all kinds of different places, all kinds of different scenarios and stories, but you sense that God is up to something in your life. In your two or three or 16 years that you're here, I hope you're getting equipped. I hope you're getting nurtured. I hope you're getting loved on. I hope you're you're seeing more and more of what it means to fill your periphery with Jesus. But then we're sent out. A bulk of you will actually leave town. You will go all over the world and do all sorts of things. Are you going in the name and in the power and in the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit? We are ascending base. Even if you stick around this town, and I hope some of you will, we're all sent. We're all sent. We are all called. So that's my question for us. I'm going to ask the band, wherever they are, to come up and lead us into a last song. I, I just, for, for some people that have sat where you're sitting, that meant some sort of vocational ministry. Andy right now is at Fuller Seminary, and he's, he's about to embark on this awesome work with this mission organization. Uh, uh, Caleb and Lindsay. Caleb did his doctorate in here, and now he's a professor at U of I. But they've been called with some other folks in Champaign to start a church, a missional church. Anna is in Budapest teaching school. Liz is on a mercy ship, a hospital ship off the coast of Western Africa. 
The hunts are in Myanmar doing entrepreneurism alongside church planting. I mean, that kind of calling is a calling on some of you. But a bulk of you will be like thousands of our alums that have gone back through these doors, and they are engineers, and they are teachers, and they are doctors, and they are living out a life with Jesus wherever they are, with intentionality and with grace. So, the scripture says, as they were praying and fasting, as they came open-handed, not with a mandate, God, you need to do this because I am sure that this is what I'm supposed to do with my life, right? I'm sure that this is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to make me fulfilled. This is why I am doing what I'm doing rather than that kind of mandate to God that doesn't work so well. We come open-handed and saying, God, whatever you want of my life. And in the midst of that open-handed worship, midst of that prayer, fasting, the Spirit talks and the Spirit said, set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul. And as Acts continues, I think you can insert your name there. The Spirit is speaking, and he's saying, set apart for me. Insert Set apart for me. the question. Open-handed. Where? What? How? God, what is the calling on my life? Where are you taking me? How can I reflect Jesus? Where? Can we just ruminate? Can we pray? Can we let that William Barclay said that Acts is the second volume in a story that has no end. That Jesus isn't done. The life of Jesus goes on through his church, and you are carriers of his story. I'm going to end with this quote. The new chapter is being written by you and me. The same power through the Holy Spirit, is available. The same miraculous life can be everyday Christianity. The same quality of a church can be born in your town, on your campus. We can never be the same as we were before being gripped by acts. The bland religious life is no longer tolerable. We are disturbed and alarmed by what life and the church were meant to be. We can never be easily satisfied again. And that's exactly what Luke wanted to accomplish. A life built on Jesus and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ and his kingdom 
as we move in mission with one another.